So happy Easter, everybody. Happy Resurrection Day, whichever word you prefer. If you're triggered by the word Easter, I apologize. Go with resurrection. I said both, all right? Uh, so glad you're here. I am going to talk about the resurrection. Heather asked me this week, you know, she's the worship leader. Uh, yeah, I married the worship leader, but she wasn't the worship leader when I married her, so it's not weird, all right? Uh, and, and she said, what are, what are you talking about this way? I said, you know, it's the resurrection. And she's like, well, what about it? Like, what's your, what's the theme? Like, what do you, I said, well, it's the whole, like, Jesus coming alive part. And, and she's like, yeah, but, you know, what song should I say? So maybe songs about Jesus coming alive. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else to give. I'd drive her crazy with my lack of creativity. So I'm not going to be creative this morning. I'm just going to tell you the story. And there, you know, I'm going to zoom out, actually. So if you're confused at first, like, where's the empty grave part? We'll get there. Uh, but I'm going to, sometimes it's fun to zoom in on the story, right? And just look at a, at a snapshot. And sometimes it's fun to zoom out. And I'm zooming out this morning, okay? Um, we're going to start in Genesis and go all the way maybe to Revelation, if we have time. But we'll at least get to the actual resurrection, okay? And it will not take hours and hours. I will go quickly um, to get there. But I think this is important because you need to see that your moment in history, wherever that is in your life, and what you're dealing with right now is, is not all there is. And it's not the only thing, that you are a part of something that's been going on since before the beginning of time. And you're standing square in the middle of it. And you're important to it. And so everything in your life is not incidental. It's planned and ordered by God, and I want you to see this from the beginning, okay? Um, so that's where we're going. So Genesis 1 tells us that before anything was made, there was God. Now that, just that thought alone is going to bake your noodle, okay? It's going to make you, I can't conceive of anything before there was anything. These are just, you're just running into the limitations of the human brain and human language to even describe something before the beginning, when there was nothing. But before there was anything, there's God. And God was perfectly happy, totally satisfied with himself. He had need of nothing. He wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't sad and lonely, you know, like God at the beach looking at the sunset alone and wishing there was someone that would come along and just fill that empty hole in his heart. There was no man-shaped void in God's heart. He wasn't pining away for you and I to suddenly give his life meaning. God was God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. They're, they're having an eternal, perfect party that doesn't need a fourth person. He's totally happy and satisfied in himself. Perfectly holy, perfectly joyful. You know, so unified that there's only one will in God. I was thinking about that this week. Think about that. There's no discussion between the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father about what should we do with that Ben Cotton? What should we do? I don't know. I think we should do this. And they have to discuss and have meetings. There's none of that. They just do things because there's only one will. They're that unified with each other. And there's just joy and peace and wholeness, perfect shalom in God. And he just says, you know what? We're so awesome. This joy is so great. This glory is so immense. It should be shared. 
and he decides to make a place before there was any such thing as a place. And he makes a place, and he puts animals on it, and he's all creative, and he makes weird things like platypus. I can't even know what the plural of platypus is, because it's so weird. Platypi, I don't know what multiple platypuses are, but he made those things. He's got the platypus and the ostrich. I mean, that's enough for me. There is a God. And he does have a sense of humor, right? He starts making stuff and put it on there. He says, but you know, I want something that looks like me because that's why we're doing this. And so he makes man and woman, human beings, and he puts them there. And their design is to just receive his love and reflect it back to him. He puts like a, a will in there, which is very like him. And he puts characteristics of himself in them so that they'll reflect his glory back to him. And there's this wonderful picture of the Garden of Eden, right? And they're just walking and talking and hanging out and, and just walking in the cool of the day, talking to God, and he talks to them. And it's this wonderful thing. And then Adam and Eve get tempted, right? Remember that part in Genesis where Eve gets tempted by Satan. He says, hey, you know, you should, I know God told you not to eat that fruit right there, but doesn't it look good? And she changes, she disagrees with God about what's good. God said it's bad, she says it's good, and she eats it, and then she shares it, as any good wife would do. She just shares with her husband, and he eats it, and now we have a simple but terrible act of rebellion and disobedience. We call that sin. And from, as a result of that sin, we have death. Spiritual death and physical death enters into the world. Sin is not only what we do in disobedience, it's also the inclination of our hearts. It's what we lean towards. When left alone, with no one telling you not to, you just lean into sin every time. But then in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we have a glimmer of hope. So God lists out all the curses that come from sin. All the damage that's done. He lists it out in terrible black and white. And there, right close to the end of those, all that bad news, we have a promise. This is Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, that would be Satan. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So suddenly he's talking about a he in the middle of that sentence. Who is that? Some offspring of Eve, male offspring of Eve, is going to crush or bruise. Bruise is a kind of a weak translation of that word. Attack maybe is better with a fatal blow. Or you could say crush. Some translations say crush. Some male descendant of Eve is going to crush Satan's head. And as Satan's head is being crushed, He's going to bite his heel, a fatal blow both ways. 
Now, who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. So in the midst of all this cursing and loss due to the sin of Adam and Eve, there's hope. This is God. This is, how, this is the grace of God showing up long before Jesus, right there at the beginning. Grace towards people who don't deserve it, towards the transgressors. I mean, God could have just said, you know what, I'm going to squash Adam and squash Eve, wipe the whiteboard clean, and we're going to start with two more. Clean slate. But he didn't. He offered a promise. This is not a prediction. This is a promise. This is not God saying, maybe one day, I hope if it works out, I'll send someone to crush and solve this situation. He promises it. Then in Genesis 6-9, through we have the flood narrative. Everybody, uh, you know, this is kind of the story of the Old Testament. You have this promise, and pretty, almost immediately by the next chapter, everybody's just killing each other. That's kind of how it goes. That's what we do. You, you set a bunch of people loose on the planet, and they just start killing each other. And this is what they do. And we, by Genesis 6-9, through we have the flood. God says, you know what? This is not going well. He says, you guys, you're, you're making children, and those children, instead of being righteous and trying to pursue me, instead they're just trying to invent ways to be more wicked. Do You feel like using your creative, God-imaging creativity that I put in you to use to reflect my love back to me, instead you're using it to come up with new ways to do evil things. So God finds Noah and his family and says, they're righteous enough. We'll pull them out. We'll put them on a boat. I'm going to wipe the whole thing out, and then we'll start over. By the end of chapter 9, Noah is drunk, and his sons are handling it shamefully. Oh, maybe I picked the wrong people. It never takes long for things to fall apart after somebody gets it right. If you've been here going through First and Second Kings with us, you've discovered that repeating narrative, right? So again, God curses them. You see them try to build the Tower of Babel. This is not what God told them to do. He said, scatter and, and make righteous children. Like, that's the goal. That's what you do. Go scatter and make more. And they don't. They clump together and they build a tower and they say, we don't need God. And God curses their language and scatters them again. And then in chapter 22, we have Abraham. Abraham, the, 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 the glimmer of hope. Surely this one will be righteous. Abraham has faith, but that's about all he's got. He's also a mess. Go read his story. He's like one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, and he was not a great dad not a great husband, would not qualify for our elder team. <laughs> Tell me about your marriage, Abraham. Well, can we talk about something else? But he's in the heroes list in Hebrews. God asked Abraham to sacrifice the one hope he has of seeing God's promise to him fulfilled. Remember God's promise to him, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And he's got one kid. Take a huge promise from God and you try to squeeze it down inside of one person. All my hope's in you, Isaac. Hold the line. God says, kill him. Sacrifice him. 
So Abraham obeys God. Shock of all shocks and takes him up a hill to sacrifice him. And once Abraham's obedience was secure, God stops him from fries of ram. Instead, it's a great picture of Jesus. They're living parables of what would one day happen to Jesus Christ. Jesus would go up a hill carrying wood to be sacrificed. But instead of there being a lamb in its place, he was the lamb in your place. So that's exciting, that's hope-filled, that's great. Abraham's doing well, but then Jacob, Isaac's son, schemes and lies his way into covenant blessing and things start to fall apart again. His sons are no better. All the way to Judah, who was willing to have sex with a temple prostitute, by the way. You're looking for heroes in the Old Testament and you find one, you say, wow, I found a hero, just give it a couple of more chapters. Jacob famously prophesied to Judah, Genesis 49, 8 through 10. This to the uh, guy who wanted to go to the temple and sleep with a prostitute. This is the promise God gives him. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh is a really interesting personal name because it was actually a place. It's the name of the city where the prophet Samuel grew up and the place where the Ark of the Covenant was temporarily held. And it means a place of rest or a place of peace. Used in this way as a name for some way, someone is really interesting. Most agree that it means rest giver or peace giver. But I think you could also say because it's where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept, it's also the presence of God giver. It's where the presence of God rested. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. The one who gives peace, the one who gives rest, and the one who is the presence of God, and the one who gives the presence of God himself. And he says to Judah, this messed up guy, from you, your tribe, is going to come Shiloh. God is saying that Judah will hold the kingly authority over Israel forever until the rest giver comes. But then things go sideways again. <laughs> Power shifts in Egypt. A new pharaoh and Joseph is out of the picture. He can't protect them anymore. Exodus 1 describes the new pharaoh attempting to wipe out all the male Israelites. Jesus had to hide in Egypt, by the way, when he was born. So God sovereignly saves them from genocide and raises up Moses to deliver them. Moses then leads God's people out of captivity in Egypt into the desert and on their way to the land he had promised them. Remember that story? Across the Red Sea, all the plagues. Moses is yet another living prophecy of the coming Christ. And through Moses in Exodus 20, God gave the law, the Ten Commandments. 
But Moses intercedes for the people before God, and the sacrificial system is born as a way to deal with the sin of the people. But Moses blew it too, right? Then we have the prophets and kings. The people decide that prophets aren't enough. They want a monarchy, like their cool friends next door. Like, that's literally true. They say, we want, we want a king too. We don't want just God talking to us. We need somebody we can vote for. We didn't vote for kings. I'm being, I'm being naughty. Never mind. Forget I said it. They wanted a monarchy like their cool pagan neighbors. God tells them through Samuel, it's a bad idea. They'll abuse you. It'll be terrible. They say, nah, thanks for the advice, God. We think we'll go with our way. And, they, and God says, fine, I'll give, you, I'll give you a king. At least let me pick the king. So they make a concession with God. We'll allow you to pick our king for us. But in God's mercy, he says, amid all this foolishness, he promises them a true and better king. He says, okay, I'll use your thing, and I'll tell you that I got a better king coming. 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13 says, from, that, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you the rest from all your enemies. Shiloh. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So I'm sending you a true king, a better king, a righteous king, whose throne will not last for 20, 30 years, and then fall, and then you get another guy to come after. He's terrible. That's going to end one day. And I'll give you a true king, a righteous king, who will stay on the throne forever. Of course, they didn't interpret that the way Jesus would do it. But that's the promise. Then we come to Isaiah, getting close to our Isaiah 53 that I read. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Isaiah prophesies, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you just go read Isaiah 52 and 53 and 54 and just keep going, it just gets more and more mind-boggling. Isaiah 25 that Joe Lee read this morning. So then we just have a lot of years generation after generation of one failure after another. God has this way of making promises really early. He says, hey, just, just wait like 700 years. There's going to be a guy who's going to come and solve this. In fact, we did a study a few, maybe a month or two ago about hope. I don't know if you remember this, that hope and the word wait are the same. If you have hope, then you'll wait. Then we have this really interesting prophecy right before 400 years of prophetic silence. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you don't, you can be forgiven for not being up on your ancient Near East history regarding donkeys and horses. Uh, but let me help you with that. Um, when a king rode into, was going into battle, he'd ride his war horse. But when a king wanted to announce peace, he'd ride in on a donkey. And so this prophecy is about peace. A king who will bring peace is coming. Then 400 years of spiritual wilderness and prophetic silence comes upon Israel. Their national and spiritual identity is all but lost under Persian, then Greek, then Roman rule throughout history. No more prophecies of hope of the coming Messiah. Just distant memories of what God had promised so many generations before until Christmas. Jesus comes in not as a king wearing a crown, riding a war horse, taking his throne and kicking Rome out. He comes quietly bringing peace as Shiloh himself. This is what Palm Sunday is. Matthew 21, 1 through 11 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, or Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We just read that from Zechariah. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah 9 when he did that. Announcing who he is, which made some people happy and made others want to kill him. Then the gospel accounts tells us that the king of peace, Shiloh himself, was betrayed by his own disciples, mocked by the crowds, beaten by Roman guards, nearly to the point of death made to carry his own cross of wood up to the top of Golgotha, the, the skull, where he was tortured to death on a cross for claiming to be the Messiah. Shiloh had come and lived a sinless life in our place and then died in our place, taking our sin to the grave with him. It's the greatest tragedy the world's ever seen. God himself, so go back to where we started. Before there was anything, before there was anything at all, anything made, anything created, any place at all, there's just God, perfectly holy, 
perfectly righteous, perfectly good, love beyond imagination, satisfied in himself. And he says, I'll just, you know what? Just want, I want to share this. I want to share it and have it reflected because we're that glorious. And he makes these creatures and he puts in them his image, a reflection of himself, so that the universe would look at them and go, oh, how great is God. And they rebel against him. And then he says, you know what? I'll save them. And so he, come, he, he steps away from all of that glory and he comes down and the response of the creature is to mock him, to beat him, to torture him, and then kill him and say, good riddance. Toss him in the ground. I can't imagine what the angels thought. I always think about that. Watching, like, I can't believe he's going there. Those people are messed up. Did you remember Noah? Man. He's going down there? I don't even want to go there. <clears throat> they smell funny. They do evil things. They're just constantly coming up with new evil things that I never thought of. I never thought they would do. And he's going there. And then you, they watch him going through this life and healing and performing miracles and you know, raising people from the dead and just being a great guy to everybody. And then the crowd starts shouting, cheering for him as he rides into the donkey. Hey, he's doing the Zechariah thing. I was hoping he'd do that. And then those same people, somehow within a couple of days, seem to just turn and go from worshiping and singing and singing his praises to yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Tell you what, let the murderer Barabbas out in his place so we can make sure he gets properly killed. The shock in heaven must have been incredible. Well, it wasn't just the beating, it wasn't just the death, it was that Jesus took on the sin of the world. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin. So that unity we talked about, the one will in God, Always knowing exactly what the Father is thinking, exactly what the Father wills while he's on earth, suddenly that unity is broken because now Jesus is sin itself. And he cries out on the cross, Father, why have you turned from me? Why have you forsaken me? Every sin you've ever committed, the ones you know about, the ones you don't know about, the ones that you don't want anyone else to know about, the really gross, wicked stuff, all of it was laid on him. And every sin you commit now in the present, right now, maybe you're a little jealous of somebody, maybe you're a little angry at somebody, and you got some gross, sinful thing bouncing around in your heart, that is being paid for right now. And every sin you will commit in the future was laid on him. And that's just you. <laughs> A big pile of yucky goo coming out of you. But also every 
person who has ever lived or will live. All that went on him. Not in some kind of theoretical way, but as though he had done those things himself. But Sunday's coming, right? Luke 24, 1 through 12 says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, I think they're a little annoyed at this point. That's just how I read it. Don't you remember what he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened, probably pretended like it was his idea. With no help whatsoever, Jesus beat death. It was not hard for him, because life always beats death. We don't see it that way because we're on the wrong side of heaven. But life always beats death. It was as normal, a natural thing for God to not be constrained by death as it is, his breathing is for you and I. He just waited three days and got up. Death is no problem for him because he is life itself. He is the resurrection. Following this resurrection, Jesus physically appeared to the disciples. He talked and ate with them. He let Thomas touch his hands, which is kind of gross, but that's what he did. He appeared to 500 people at one time, Paul says. And Jesus would leave again, but not before giving instructions to wait on the Holy Spirit. And then they were to go into all the world, making disciples, teaching them what Jesus taught, and baptizing them. That's where we come in. That's what we're doing here. This is how you got here. However you got here. However you came to know this story and believe in it. This is how. Because they actually obeyed him to their peril. Matthew 28, 20b ends with this. This is the end of Jesus' command. With this beautiful, wonderful promise. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This can only be true if he's alive. Because if he's dead and he's buried in the ground somewhere, this is a lie. 
And we are, as Paul says, to be pitied. And everything we do here, all the singing, all the clapping, all the rejoicing is silliness. But if he's risen and he's here, then the rest of the world are fools. And we are his kids. And he's with us. That's what I believe. There's a lot of waiting in this story, and I think what I'm going to do, sorry, Chris. Yeah, she just snapped to alert. Revelation 5, because, I mean, I just can't not go to the end of the story. And I've got, like, a few minutes. We've got a couple more hours. So in Revelation 4, which I'm not going to read, Chris, I'm going to do Revelation 5, I don't know, maybe most of it or all of it. So Godspeed. All right. Um, Revelation 4, we have this amazing picture of, and it's full of symbolism, but the idea is you have the throne of God and the Father is sitting on the throne and there's this, his glory is shining through these like gems of various colors shooting out. The place is lit by the glory of God. It's like this impenetrable light is shining out from the throne and gathered all around the throne it's just everybody. It's the, the whole church is there, past, present, and future. Every saint that's ever lived is there. And then the, the angels and the, the, the hosts of heaven are gathered outside that. And it stretches out so far, it's like a sea of glass that you can't see the end of. And they're all singing and worshiping the Father. And this is, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. And then we have this moment. There's all this singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? They're just singing and they can't stop and they're all bowing and laying crowns down and that whole thing. And then there's an interruption. And there's a scroll here. And the only thing I'm, I'm not going to teach the whole chapter, but you need to know what the scroll is. The scroll, I think, at least, is you and I, our names written. Every Christian Every one that Jesus hung on the cross for is written there. And this is the scene. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Everybody that was there, all the good people, all the people that barely made it in, everybody is there. None of them are worthy. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The seven horns with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. I don't know what the tune was, but it had to be amazing. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, uncountable Numbers saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is who is with you always to the end of the age. This is who is with you right now. When we say Jesus is alive, don't picture the suffering servant hanging on the cross, bearing the shame of the world. Picture the lamb who was slain, the only one worthy of climbing the steps to the throne and taking the scroll from the Father and saying, I can open this. I paid the debt. And the one that all the creatures and all the elders and all the multitudes of heaven bow down and worship and sing a new song for that's who's with you till the end of the age. So then we can wait and we can hope, can't we? Not because tomorrow will be our rescue, but because he waits with us. With all the might and the power and the authority of heaven in his hand. Amen? So why don't we stand up together? I want to pray for you. And then I think we're going to sing another song. I feel like singing. You might not feel like hearing me sing, but I feel like singing. I want to just pray a couple of things. One is, if if your view of Jesus has diminished, where it doesn't feel like much comfort to hear with you, then I want to pray that your spiritual sight would get bigger. That you would see him for who he is. He's not coming back on a donkey. He's coming back on a white horse, is what Revelation says. He's coming back as the hero, not the suffering servant. And so when he says, I'm with you, that's what he means. And I want you to, the Holy Spirit to just drop that into your heart if he hasn't already. And I also want to pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus. I'm going to pray for you right now. And then if, you're, if you want to just talk to me, during the song I'll be over here I just want to pray with you that you can give your heart to him because this is 
a God worth serving, worth following, worth giving your life for, worth worth laying your life down for, worth dying for. There is nothing you have or own or plan to do. There is no dream, no desire that that it compares to Him. It's all worth laying down, including your next breath. It's worth laying down for Him. If you want to give your life to Him, I want to pray with you. So I'm going to pray for those two things. Lord, first I ask you to, for everyone here that needs more hope, more strength to wait on you for deliverance, God, I pray that they would not feel as if they are waiting alone. God, I pray that they would right now by your Spirit sense your presence with them. You are a friend, you are a brother, you are king, but you are also the great and mighty Lord who has won us with his life. Lord, I pray that we would be comforted not only by his friendship, but also by his kingship this morning. God, I pray for anyone here who has come this morning that just needs to lay their life down at your feet like those elders and worshipers in Revelation 5 that see you for who you actually are and are compelled to fall at your feet. Worshiping you with everything they are. Laying their whole lives down, their whole selves down at your feet saying, what, would, what can I do but worship you? God, I pray that you would give them the faith right now to do that. God, help us to do what Jesus said, the living, risen Jesus. Help us to go into all the earth telling the world that he is alive and not dead. He is risen. The grave is empty. We do not serve or worship a old, dead remembrance. We worship a present king. God, help us to have that kind of boldness as believers. In the name of Jesus, amen.